0: If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. The past month or so, we've been doing a series of meditations, and I want to continue in that vein today. Last week, we saw that James opens his letter, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. And then he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. In writing this letter to former members, because James was the head of the church in Jerusalem and because of persecution many had left Jerusalem and scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin and he writes this letter to them, he writes to them and he does not say, I have discovered a new secret or I have discovered something new about the gospel. Now I want to share it with you. What we find throughout this book is that time after time, he says, brothers, you know. So this is not new material. It's stuff they already know, but I think in some ways they have forgotten. Last Sunday, we considered the matter of joy, a meditation of sorts on joy. And what exactly is joy? If you were here last week, you may realize that I did not actually give a definition of joy. It is the confident assurance of God's love and work in our lives, no matter what happens. But it is worth noting that this is not the only time that joy is mentioned in this book. It's here in the second verse of the book, but it's also mentioned in chapter four. And so if you would, it's probably just a page over in your Bibles. Look at James chapter four, in which here again, he talks about joy um, but not in a way that we would expect. Which is fine, because we didn't expect it at the beginning. It's sort of like the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, blessed are, we have expectations of good things, and then the poor in spirit, those who mourn. James says, consider pure joy, we're expecting good things, and now he talks about trials. Well, in chapter 4, he gives ten commands, ten imperatives, if you wish, After speaking of God's grace. He gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says. God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. But then look at verse number 7. If you would. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands you sinners. And purify your hearts you double minded. Grieve Mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What we find is that James is telling his readers to abandon joy and to turn to gloom. Well, if we stick with our definition that joy is a confident assurance of God's love and work in our lives no matter what happens, why would James then turned around and tell his readers to abandon joy and turn to gloom. We think of what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And for those of you who weren't here last week, joy is the noun. Rejoice is the verb. So we are always to have joy. We are to always rejoice. And then yet James says that we are to abandon it. Why does James do this? What is he telling us? I think the key to this passage is humility. The humble person acknowledges his or her need of grace, while the insistently self-centered feel pretty self-sufficient. They have no need of such grace. Therefore, those who are insistently self-centered may, in fact, feel joy or joyful, They are quite confident of God's love, God's work in their lives, but in fact they have abandoned the truth. He or she has become a friend of the system, the world that stands in opposition to God. Therefore, that person has become an enemy of God. And whatever confident assurance he or she may feel, it is really misplaced. James tells them to set such joy aside. You think you have joy, this confident assurance? Uh, You need to be humble before the Lord. You need to recognize that God, in fact, will correct you. He will discipline you. Repentance is, in fact, in order. You may remember that near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And in the parable of the sower, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. So we may in fact have, and we may ourselves be, people who have this confident assurance of God's work in our lives, uh, but there's something seriously wrong. And so in chapter 4, James tells those who do not have humility, who don't think they need God's grace, they need to get rid of that confident assurance and they need, in fact, to realize that they need to repent. So he begins, considered pure joy. Now he tells them to turn their joy into gloom. But go back to chapter 1, verse 2, and he says to consider pure joy, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I was talking to Don and Chuck before the service, and I said, you know, last week we talked about joy, and I felt like I couldn't sort of leave it and not talk about trial, because it sort of leaves us hanging. And so what I'd like to do today is have a meditation of sorts on trial or trials. What is a trial? There are two things to keep in mind as we jump into this. First of all, when James writes, whenever you face trials of many kinds, the King James has when you fall into trials, the ESV says when you meet trials, but the word that James uses is the same word that Jesus did in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that a certain man went down to Jericho and fell among thieves, and the sense is that he was ambushed, and so I think it would be helpful for us to think of this verse as whenever you are ambushed by many trials or trials of many kinds. This points to the unexpected nature. An ambush is precisely that. It's something that surprises you. You're not expecting it. If you were, you wouldn't be ambushed. You'd be ready for it. Trials are not always anticipated. And the different kinds of trials are not anticipated as well. I think there is a temptation, and I think I've been guilty of it in the past, to think if I could just see it coming, if I just knew what the trial would be, I'd be better prepared to handle it. But the reality is trials ambush us. We're walking down the road and we are ambushed by these trials. They do not come in the form that we expect they do not come from the source or sources that we expect. I think both of these are true. But somehow in our minds we've got a certain category. This is the trials that will come into my life fit into this category. And then you find out that it's actually something quite unexpected. And we have certain expectations that these, these individuals, for example, might be the cause of trials in my life. And then as we read today of Judas who betrays Jesus, it comes from a close friend. So the first thing is to keep in mind that this is an ambush that James is talking about. Secondly, the word trial is found here in verse number two, as well as in verse number 12. And in Greek, it is perasmos, but the verb tempt comes from the same root word. So, Trial and tempt or temptations come from the same root word. So look at verse number 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So right off we see that there's a problem. Trial, temptation. Same word, same root word. In the New Testament, these words are used in two distinct ways. The first speaks of an outward trial. What we might put in the category of persecution or testing. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So there is a sense of outward trial or testing. But the second way it is used of an inner enticement to sit. Second, or 1 Timothy 6, 9, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So with these two things in mind, what are we to say? What is a trial? Well, I think we need to back up a little bit. When we look at the letters of the New Testament, they are written in a particular context. James has decided to write to the members of the congregation in Jerusalem that have been scattered across the Mediterranean basin. And, I think he's probably heard back from some of them. He's heard reports of the difficulties that they're facing. And so his decision to begin his letter to them with this I think indicates that they in fact were going through trials of many kinds. But I think there were other things going on as well that he had insight into. In verses 2 through 11 he deals with the external trials. In verses 12 to 19, he deals with the internal trials or struggles. He begins by talking about the purpose of trials. If you look at verses 3 and 4, that they involve the testing of our faith. And this produces perseverance. And this will bring us to a place of maturity and completeness. In the second section, we find an abrupt change. What we find is that in fact, There is an inner enticement to sin. There is something within us. Something has come into our path. We have been ambushed by this event, this person, whatever it is. And there is this enticement within our hearts to cause us to sin. I think we need to realize that the very same trial can be a cause of testing... And we can mature as a result, that very same trial can be a temptation to do something that is wrong. It can lead us into temptation. So, in the one case, we can move forward as we meet the test. In the second case, in fact, we can go backward to the way we used to be before grace came into our lives. This means that every trial can, in fact, become a temptation which makes verse number two all the more problematic. Consider pure joy when you are ambushed by trials, which could lead to temptations of many kinds. James isn't playing words with us. Okay? He's not you know, somehow trying to be tricky. While he has said that these trials can in fact bring us to a place of maturity, He's also where they can, in fact, they have a power of their own to cause us to backslide, if you wish, to go back to the way we used to be. And we should recognize that every trial has within it, well, actually not within it, within ourselves, that can cause it to become a temptation. So, when a t- trial comes, when we are ambushed by a trial, whether it be circumstance, a person, whatever it is, we have to make a decision. Will we continue with God and go forward? Or will we, in fact, listen to the voice within us which says there's a much easier way to deal with this and it is to give in to whatever temptation that is brought by the trial. Where does this voice come from? This voice that says, hey, just go with the flow. Just don't worry about it. It's not a big thing. Just..." Do whatever you think is right. Well, James wants us to know that it doesn't come from God. This is something we need to hear because it is far too easy for us to blame God for anything that happens in our lives. We could argue God is in control, can be very pious about it. God is sovereign. And yet he allowed the circumstance to come into my life. It is actually God who is tempting me to do something I should not do. And when we do this, by the way, we're being like our father, Adam. Who blamed him? He says, The woman that you made, that you put here with me, she's the one who caused me to sin. So, God, it's your fault that you made the woman. This is human nature by now that we want to blame God. But we cannot blame God because God is holy and God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone. I think we need to think about that a moment, that God does not tempt anyone. It is just so easy for us to say, God allowed this to come into my life. It's His fault that this has happened to me. I gave into this because God brought this circumstance into my life. It's not really my fault at all. The reality is, God is holy. And He is so holy that, in fact, there is no room within His motivation, if you wish, in His will, in His actions that would, in fact, lead him to tempt someone to sin. He does allow trials, but trials are not negative by nature. They can be, but they are, in fact, an opportunity for us to learn. When you take a test in school, it is, if you wish, a trial, a testing, to see if you know the material or not. It's a good thing because, in fact, you may have thought you knew the material, and when you get a low grade, you realize, oh, I thought I knew this, and I do not. So the test, the trial, has a positive effect. Trials are not all negative. So, for example, when God took Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to the promised land, he took them on a path that wasn't a straight line because he, in fact, wanted to test them. This is from Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 and 2. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase, and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So there is a testing. God tested them for 40 years to know what was in their heart. God is not trying to trip them up. He's not trying to trip us up. He, in fact, is testing us so that we can pass the test and move on. We can move forward. I would say without a test, we might, in fact, just be standing still. With temptation, we're certainly going to go backwards. But with a test, there is the potential for us passing the test... To then move forward, to grow in grace. So we cannot blame God, so who do we blame? Well, the blame lies within ourselves. The tempting voice is that of our own sinful nature. God's way is hard, so we think, too demanding. Who is he to be the boss of us? The other way, the way of temptation, is much easier. The divine nature is holy. It is transparent. Human nature is sinful. And what begins as a desire becomes an avenue to sin and to death. If you want to th- think about temptation, think of the temptations of Jesus. And each one of them was a call to take the easy way out. That's what temptation does. Um, And I think particularly the third temptation, Satan put him on top of a mountain and showed him all the nations of the world, bow down to me and these can all be yours. One could say, you bow down to me. You don't have to spend three years with disciples who will be faithless. As we read today, they abandon him. You don't have to be around a bunch of sinners for three years. You don't have to die on the cross. I will just give this to you. It's the easy way. That's what temptation does. In the King James, it uses the word lust, and the NIV has evil desire. But the word actually that James uses is a very neutral word. It just simply means desire, which indicates that the desire isn't right or wrong necessarily. Um, It's just that your own desire is what drives you rather than the desire to follow what God says. So a trial becomes a temptation, and a desire, which is neutral, becomes deadly. But you know what? I still haven't answered the question, what is a trial? Let me give you a short definition. A trial is God's testing of his people. I think a common mistake that we make, and perhaps I've given you that impression thus far in this meditation, is that trials are something that are difficult and painful. If you look up trials in various Bible dictionaries we have have upstairs, invariably you will find the entry on sufferings. Instead of trial, they'll say, see sufferings. Um, But the examples that James gives us of trials don't involve suffering. Interestingly enough, if you look at verse number 9 of James 1, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. When people come to these verses, I think they've already forgotten quite quickly, what they read in the verses that come right before it. Um, in fact, they might say, it seems that James has suddenly taken a right turn. What is, why is he talking about the poor and the rich? Well, certain connections do emerge with what he's talked about with regard to trial. James, by the way, addresses the poor, but he does not use the word poor, does he? He speaks of the brother in humble circumstances. And then he talks about the rich, those he does call the rich. And the result is we have a contrasting circumstances of poverty and of wealth. And this connects, I think, with the idea of trials of many kinds. The poor man has certain problems. His circumstances may, in fact, seem to be a trial or a series of trials. And in fact, he might want to trade his position for that of the rich man. But the Bible is clear that wealth brings with it its own problems. It is an insidious threat to one's commitment to God. James tells both the humble, one in humble circumstances, and the rich man to, in fact, take pride in their circumstances because it is the reverse of what is really there. That is, the one who is humble in circumstance, the poor, if you wish, in fact has a high position. He is now a child of God. And the rich man should take pride in his low position that he recognizes that he was a sinner in need of God's grace. Not just once in the past, but ongoing He needs God's grace. And therefore, they both should, in fact, consider pure joy when they are ambushed by trials of many kinds. A new perspective is offered that rather than trusting in our own wisdom, we should look to God for wisdom. We should ask God, who, in fact, gives quite freely wisdom, He gives us insight. If we ask God for wisdom, we will see that our position in life, our circumstances, for what they really are. If we think, boy, if I just had more money, I'd be okay. We fail to recognize that we are the children of God. We are in heavenly places in Christ. At the same time, if our bank accounts are flush and we might sort of feel like we are secure, we need to be reminded that, in fact, we are sinners in need of God's grace at all times. In the midst of poverty, the poor brother can say, how rich I am. In the midst of wealth, the rich brother can say, what a wretch I am, in need of God's grace. Because both of them are thinking to the future, to the new creation, to eternity. It is worth noting that James doesn't fill in details about high position or low position. But it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to think or to guess what he means. The heights we are lifted up in Christ, the depths, those from which Christ has rescued us. And both have an eye on the goal. And what is the goal? Look, if you would, at verses 2, 3, and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. The wisdom that God gives us allows us. It gives us the ability to see things as they really are. To have the right definitions of things. So when we see someone who is rich, we might say, well, actually, no, this person is poor. And when we see someone who may, in fact, be in humble circumstances, we can say this person has been lifted up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this wisdom, we stop making decisions. We stop living our lives based on appearances. On what appears to be true, and instead we make decisions based on the truth of the matter. The comparison, I think, here points to vulnerability and weakness. It points to the reality of how our lives are, the fragility of our existence. This is how we are to live. But we live in a very prosperous nation. It is hard for us to think of not being wealthy, of not having things. The magnetism of riches and possessions is quite powerful. It is like a magnet drawing us. And we need the wisdom of God day by day to give us insight for us to see clearly how things are. By the way, I've mentioned this before and it hit me several years ago. It is not only the rich who are obsessed with possessions and wealth. The poor are as well. They just don't have them, but they want to have them. And so it becomes an obsession with them. And in both cases, they're wrong. They are not seeing things as they should. They do not have the wisdom of God. Wealth is not wrong. We have quite wealthy individuals both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we should be concerned with is how we get our wealth, how we use our wealth, and what place it holds in our hearts. Does it take the center part of our hearts? Then, then we are seriously in trouble. But let's go back to the business of trials and suffering. Why is it that people almost see them as synonyms? Trials and sufferings are one and the same thing. There are passages in the New Testament that in fact speak of suffering as a trial. Second Timothy 1 I'm sorry, second Thessalonians 1:4 Therefore, among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring." First 1 Peter 1:6In 1, all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials um, So we we have this tendency to just take these verses and see them as, okay. all trials must, in fact, involve suffering. Um, And when we read verses three and four, as we've just done, we might see them through a different lens and see this testing of our faith and perseverance and endurance as being about suffering, that we have to suffer or we're going through these sufferings. And these are the trials that James is talking about. I don't think that that is necessarily the case. There can be different kinds of trials that involve suffering. Sickness, uh, loneliness, bereavement, disappointment, loss of various kinds. And I believe that these, in fact, can be a test, a trial from God to see if we will continue to walk in his steps or go our own way. What is the purpose of a trial? It is, in fact, to test our faith, to produce perseverance, staying power. And that staying power is to get us to the end of the race that God has called us to. But we should not think that trials are only the difficult things in life. In a real sense, an easy road in life is as much a trial as a difficult road. If I were to say to you, okay, here are two paths, this is a difficult one, and this is an easy one. Which one is a trial? I think we would say the difficult one. And the reality is both of them can, in fact, be trials Referring back to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. In the Old Testament, in the life of Israel, God provided manna with them, which was also a trial. Exodus 16.4, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. In Deuteronomy 8, the trials of the promised land are mentioned. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increases and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of captivity. Many of us know people who have left the Christian faith. Some have left perhaps because of suffering. They don't understand why God will allow them to go through this. Some have left because of difficulties, but many have left because of the good life. When I consider my own life, I have found that difficulties can cause me to complain and to question God's goodness. to question his wisdom, because that's not the way I would do it. I have found that suffering, and I actually have not suffered that much in my life, can distract me from what is right. But I've also found that the good days, the easy days, may in fact have the potential to blind me to reality. In the same way that people confuse joy with happiness, they confuse trials with sufferings. You can have joy and be happy. But you can also have joy, to have this sense of contentment, this assurance, this confident assurance, and not be happy at a given moment. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. In the same way, we can suffer as a result of trials but we can also go through trials without one bit of suffering and in the process fail to recognize that in fact we are going through a trial. We need to be aware that trials will ambush us. They will come in forms we do not expect and they come from a source or sources that we do not anticipate at all. They come in a form we don't expect. It's not just the bad things, as we see it, the suffering, the difficult things. Even in the ease of life, when things are going really well, the question is, will we go forward, or will we go back? Will we slide back? Will we take the easy path, because we're in an easy road already, or will we, in fact, by the grace of God, go forward? As I said earlier, I think there's a strong temptation to think if I know when the trial is coming and what form it will take, I'll be ready for it. That's not going to happen. okay? And I would suggest to you that many have gone through trials and didn't even know it. Now, If somebody's in the hospital, if somebody's sick, uh, if someone's in a car accident, we say, well, that's, that's certainly a trial. We don't look at someone who got a promotion at work and say, wow, that's a trial. But it is. It's a test. Will we follow God or will we not? We need to take this to heart and consider it pure joy, this confident assurance that God has been taking care of us in the past, the present, and he will in the future, and that he will continue to do so even when our circumstances will say, no, he's not. and the circumstances that say no he's not are not merely difficult ones it's the easy ones because then we forget that this came from god and we become full of ourselves and like moses warned the israelites when you get into the promised land don't when everything's going well forget that it is god who brought you out we are to look to god for wisdom to see things as they truly are And know that by his grace, he is with us every step of the way. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we think of your church going through trials today, we think of people in other countries, in communist countries, in the Middle East, third world countries, who are being persecuted, even put to death for their faith. We pray for them. We think of them in terms of trials. But when we look at our situation in this country, hardly a hint of persecution. Financially, we're doing well. We have a health care system. We have access to health care. We don't imagine that we are undergoing trials. And yet we are. We have been ambushed by the good life and we have forgotten our need of your grace we have forgotten to humble ourselves and look to you for strength may we in the days to come meditate on these things not be hearers only but doers of the word as well may we take to heart what James tells us that we are to consider pure joy when we are ambushed by trials of many kinds. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We are grateful that you watched over Tess having a flat tire at home rather than on the freeway. We are so grateful for that. Pray for Rory as she has her final performance today. Watch over her and the cast for Chuck and Don as they drive back home. May we not forget that all we have comes from you. We thank you for your deep, deep love and your great grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.